Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at current events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. This episode of All Things is brought to you by Crossway, publisher of the new book, A Christian's Guide to Mental Illness, Answers to 30 Common Questions by David Murray and Tom Carroll Jr., a mental health Q&A from a Christian perspective. Today, we are witnessing the effects of the fall as mental health concerns surge and people continue to suffer. How should Christians approach the topic of mental health? What is the most Christ-like way to care for those who suffer? A Christian's Guide for Mental Illness answers 30 commonly asked questions about mental health from a Christian perspective. Intended for caregivers, this accessible resource will equip family, friends, and churches with wisdom for caring for individuals with mental health illnesses. Authors David Murray and Tom Carroll use a holistic approach as they share personal stories, professional expertise, and biblical wisdom to tackle difficult questions ultimately providing hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary. Pick up a copy of A Christian's Guide to Mental Illness wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org forward slash plus and get 30% off with your Crossway Plus account. Well, on today's episode, we are going to talk about a Christian approach to mental health and mental illness. In a few minutes, you'll be hearing from Dr. Tom Carroll, who is a psychologist at Pine Rest, a Christian mental health center in Michigan. Tom is also involved with Faith Community Outreach, an initiative that connects Christian mental health organizations with the faith community so that Christian clergy and believers alike can get access to the mental health support they and their communities may need. But before we dive in, I want to say that the timing of this episode is really helpful from my perspective. One reason is that we are talking more and more about mental health in the church, which is absolutely necessary and such a good improvement. We're going in the right direction. But secondly, September marks National Suicide Prevention Month. So it's a month where we can remember those who we have lost to suicide, the millions of families and communities that have been impacted, people who struggle with suicidal ideation, all of those individuals that are in that community. This is a time and a month where we can raise awareness as a nation about suicide prevention and share messages of hope with one another. So in light of Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, I want to start out by listing some warning signs that may help you determine if someone you know is at risk for suicide. So listen while I read this list of behaviors, which may indicate that your loved one is considering suicide, especially if the behavior that I mentioned is new, has increased, or seems related to a painful event or loss or change. Okay, here they are. Talking about wanting to die or kill themselves, looking for a way to kill themselves, like searching online or buying a gun, talking about feeling hopeless or having no reason to live, talking about feeling trapped or in unbearable pain, talking about being a burden to others, increasing the use of alcohol or drugs, acting anxious or agitated, behaving recklessly, sleeping too little or too much, withdrawing or isolating themselves, showing rage or talking about seeking revenge, or extreme mood swings. Now, of course, you should call 911 if you ever sense that danger for self-harm is imminent. 
But if you or someone you know exhibits any of the behaviors that I just listed, please do seek help by calling or texting 988 to reach the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline to talk to a caring professional. 988 is free. It's confidential. It's 24-7, a phone line that connects individuals in crisis with trained counselors across the United States. Of course, my hope is that we would be better prepared as Christians who are simply lay people, as well as those who are in professional ministry to deal with mental health, mental illness, even suicide ideation and suicide um, in our communities. It's um, an area that I myself, having been in ministry for a couple decades now, have interacted with or come up against um, many, many times over the years. And so my heart and desire is that we as believers would be ready to love those who are hurting. So if you happen to find yourself with a loved one, with a friend or a family member who seems like they might be contemplating suicide, some of those behaviors I listed are present. Here are some actions that you should consider taking at that time. Ask them, just straight out if they are thinking about killing themselves. This will not put the idea into their head or make it more likely that they will attempt suicide. I know sometimes we're afraid to speak bluntly, sort of beat around the bush, but what you should know is if somebody's already um, presenting those behaviors, then it's very likely they they might already be thinking about it. And it's good to, um, with love and grace and good timing and a good setting, bring this up and, and just go ahead and have that direct conversation. Listen without judging and show that you care. Stay with the person or make sure the person is in a private, secure place with another caring person until you can get further help. Remove any objects that could be used in a suicide attempt. Call or text 988 again to talk to a professional there. Or of course, reach out to somebody in your community um, that you trust, that you know might have some training in this regard, and um, just ask them for help. Hopefully your local pastor or youth ministry director or women's ministry director, someone might be able to step in and participate in this um, recovery and hopefully um, seek healing alongside you. But as you care for others, make sure that you also take care of yourself. This can be something that is really difficult and heavy so that make sure you too, as a caregiver, are seeking care for yourself. Well, I want to transition now then from raising awareness for National Suicide Prevention Month to thinking about us as believers in the church and mental health. Here are some statistics that I found really interesting. It's from various LifeWay research studies that have happened over the last several years. And these statistics, I think, will help orient you and me to the conversation that we're about to have about Christians and mental health. Okay, so listen to these numbers. 23% of pastors, that's almost one in four, almost a quarter of pastors acknowledge that they have personally struggled with a mental illness. 49%, almost half of pastors, say they rarely or never speak to their congregations about mental illness. So this remains something I think in the church that's still fairly taboo, something we um, just aren't eager to bring up or maybe feel ill-equipped to bring up, afraid we're going to say the wrong thing. 27% of churches have a plan to assist families affected by mental illness. 65% of church-going family members of those with mental illness want their church to talk openly about mental illness. So I would say that's a pretty big chunk, and I think many families are impacted in one way or another by mental illness. So it sounds like most of us want to talk about it more, but maybe we don't feel equipped to talk about it more. 
59% of those actually suffering from mental illness say the same, that they also want their churches to talk more openly about mental illness. 53% of churchgoers with mental illness say that their church has been supportive. So that's just over half. And I think that's probably on the uptick and I'm thankful for that. Um, But what if we grew churches that were even more supportive? What if we could get that up to 100%? 76% of churchgoers say suicide is a problem that needs to be addressed in their community. So three-fourths, more than three-fourths of us are saying, yes, we do need to be talking about this. 32% of churchgoers say a close acquaintance or family member has died by suicide. I think that is really startling. That means one third of us, one third of us have a loved one who passed away from suicide. So clearly we are all bearing um, hurt and regret and wounds surrounding mental illness. 80% of pastors say that their church is equipped to assist someone who is threatening to take his or her own life. Um, 80% sounds really promising. I hope that's true. Hopefully it's not wishful thinking, but hopefully pastors are thinking about this. 92% of pastors say their church is equipped to care for the family that experiences the suicide of a loved one. 4%, only 4% of churchgoers who lost a loved one to suicide say church leaders were aware of their loved one's struggles. So again, I think that just speaks to the way that this topic is still very taboo. Um, Those who are struggling with mental illness tend to keep it to themselves as well, maybe not wanting to share that even with their family or with their church. Um, It's just something that I hope that we as a faith community can continuously bring into the light. 68% of Americans feel they would be welcome in church if they were mentally ill. That's a good good number. Let's get that uh, rising as well. And then 35% of Americans say mental illness. So this is just Americans. This is not Christians. 35%, one third of Americans say mental illness could be overcome with Bible study and prayer alone. But that percentage is higher in the church. I am sad to say nearly half 48% of evangelicals believe that serious mental illness can be overcome with prayer and Bible study alone. I think the bottom line is that there are just many myths amongst Christians, many myths in the church about mental illness. I think many believers think that mental illness isn't real, that it doesn't really exist, um, or that depression is a sign of weakness or a weak faith, that mental, uh, mental health issues can be prayed away, that people with mental illness cannot lead in the church. There's lots of um, just strange and false beliefs that we carry with us about mental illness. People wonder, is it wrong for a Christian to get depressed or they see mental illness as a sin? There's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of misinformation. So I am really glad to share this conversation with you with Dr. Tom Carroll. Let's listen in. Tom Carroll, thank you so much for joining me on All Things. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Jen. It's great to have you. Could you tell your our listeners who you are, a little bit about where you're coming from and what you currently do? Well, first of all, I am a uh, son of God, uh, chosen before the foundation of the world, and uh, just thankful that God chose to bestow his love upon me. So that's uh, first and foremost. Uh, also a uh, husband to Ruth for the past 31 years, uh, daughters, adult daughters, 
and I've also been privileged to serve as a psychologist uh, for about 30, the past little over 30 years. So uh, doing a lot of outpatient uh, during those 30 years and actually two years before that did inpatient psychiatric uh, services. So um, Thanks, Tom. Well, it's good to have you. You and David Murray recently wrote a book, which I read and found so very helpful. Uh, the title is A Christian's Guide to Mental Illness. So I am a mom of teens and young adults, and I serve in my local church. And so the idea of mental health or mental illness seems to be coming up a lot. I don't know if it was COVID. I don't know if it's the our moment in the 21st century. But I feel like these themes keep coming to the surface many times a day for me, actually. So my question for you first, as we get going, is can you de define some terms for us? What is mental health or what is mental illness specifically? What are we talking about? Well, just maybe more of a working kind of definition, mental that has to do with uh, the brain or, if you will, our emotional uh, functioning, and then the uh, illness part that there's some kind of, uh, if you will, malfunction. Uh, something isn't working quite right. Uh, so that kind of in broadest uh, terms, uh, but then maybe more specifically, as we talk about in the book, uh, that there is more of the kind of mood disorders. So we talk about uh, anxiety, depression, um, bipolar uh, mood disorders, um, but we also talk about uh, perhaps psychosis or other uh, more organic uh, disorders. So that perhaps might include uh, schizophrenia uh, and perhaps uh, dementias uh, and other neurological disorders. So pretty broad term, pretty uh, broad umbrella, uh, including a, a whole lot of things. Uh, but certainly I think uh, over the last uh, few years, we've uh, gotten an awful lot more publicity about the need for mental health. And so it's uh, certainly, sh we've had this spotlight uh, to kind of illuminate uh, that the need for uh, mental health treatment and, or if you will, treatment for mental illness. At the same time, um, yeah, certainly we've just come out of COVID and uh, with, you know, certainly there's a lot, and a lot of factors that I think have brought uh, mental illness uh, more to the surface for uh, some folks. Yes. So are... Do you think, Tom, that there we are seeing more cases of mental illness? Is anxiety on the rise? Is depression on the rise? And even the psychosis that you mentioned, is it in fact increasing in this moment or do we just hear more about it because we're more connected? I think probably yes to both of those. It is okay. certainly more prevalent, uh, but uh, yeah, we're certainly hearing more. Uh, when I got my start uh, 30 plus years ago, uh, mental illness was still kind of one of those taboo kind of subjects, uh, a lot of embarrassment or even shame connected. So uh, if somebody was struggling with a mental illness, uh, there was not as much information out there and people were much more reluctant to come forward. Uh, but then uh, certainly, yeah. you know, with a lot of uh, the isolation that we've experienced uh, through COVID, uh, the loneliness, uh, as well as, and I know maybe this is a taboo for some, 
but uh, the explosion of a lot of uh, pretty harmful social media, mm. I think certainly that has increased uh, people's sense of hopelessness, a sense of helplessness, um, even and uh, that disconnect uh, from uh, their social uh, support systems. Yes, for sure. We certainly see headlines, research, books, and articles written about how social media is contributing to our lack of mental health. And I certainly know that as the mom of four daughters, it's something that is always on my mind. Um, but as you say, not just social media, but maybe even you know substance use and abuse. I know that alcohol consumption really rose during COVID, and I think probably other recreational drug use also increased during the pandemic. So we're going to get there. I think that's really interesting and something that would help our listeners. But I wanted to just share these two statistics that I read in your book. You say about 19% of US adults experience an anxiety disorder in any one year. And 31% of US adults experience an anxiety disorder in their lifetime. Those numbers feel really high to me. Talk to us a bit about anxiety. Help us understand how it's different from sort of typical worry or sadness or confusion. What makes it a disorder rather than something that is maybe more ordinary? Right. So probably, yeah, we all understand that, you know, occasionally we may worry. Uh, In the same way, you know, we think about depression. Some of us may get a case of the blues for, you know, an afternoon or maybe a couple of days. But when we're talking about an anxiety disorder, uh, we're talking about something that's interrupting a person's ability to function uh, in everyday life. Uh, So whether it be in their relationships, uh, their vocational life, um, there's it's causing some kind of impairment. Um, The other uh, thing that it's it's not just a day or two, but it's pervasive. It's been going on for weeks or perhaps even for months. Uh, so it, yeah, it's not just a little bit of worry that uh, we can easily just kind of shove to the side, uh, kind of shrug off, uh, but uh, something that uh, deserves attention uh, because it's getting too much uh, attention in here. Yeah. So it feels like anxiety and depression in particular are sort of the buzzwords or the ideas that surface in my social media feed or in my conversations around my dinner table or with my friends in church. Those things, as as we've said, keep coming up over and over. Um, While I appreciate and really celebrate and value that the taboo has been lessened, it also feels like sometimes those words are assigned to a situation that doesn't necessarily validate it. You know, I feel like we're throwing around words like trauma all the time. And then I know my friends who've experienced genuine trauma, you know, it it concerns me that their situation then sort of loses some weight or credibility. Do you understand that tension that I'm talking about here? Do Do you have thoughts on that? I'm just having flashbacks to, you know, my days in grad school uh, where we were first introduced to then DSM-3. Uh, now we've been 3R and 4, and now we're to 5. Uh, 
but uh, all of us, you know, starting to look at the criteria for all of these disorders, and we're saying, oh me, oh my, I think I am DSM-3. You know, okay. all of it, it's all here. And we're saying, well, maybe not. Okay. You know, all of us may have a symptom or two, uh, but that doesn't necessarily qualify for, a, you know, a DSM, Diagnostic Statistical Manual uh, Diagnosis. Mm -hmm. uh, so a little bit of worry, perfectly normal. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we may get stuck on something. Um, We've all experienced uh, listening to maybe this little jingle on the radio, whether it's a commercial or song, and it just keeps replaying. Just because that happens doesn't mean you have obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, so it's uh, being, it, there's an awful lot uh, sometimes of, if you will, diagnosing myself or sure. internet diagnosing. Um, and it doesn't necessarily meet uh, clinical criteria uh, to say, yeah, this is uh, of clinical significance, if you will. Um, sure. Just quickly on trauma as well, hmm. um, either that word has been thrown around uh, by a lot of uh, folks out in the social media, and uh, typical, uh, you know, we ask our questions. So in regard to, is there post-traumatic stress? Have you witnessed uh, someone dying uh, or been, you know, you know, your own near-death experience? And a lot of times people look at me strangely and go, well, no, but that doesn't mean it's not trauma. Well, then we can get into semantics. Uh, but probably, you know, all of us have had uh, some you know, startling or disturbing life circumstances. And um, so, yeah, I guess we hopefully are going to stick with some of the, the criteria that the DSM uh, prescribes rather than something I saw on TikTok. Hey, all things listeners, do you guys know about Dwell Differently? Dwell Differently is a monthly scripture memory membership. Each month, Dwell picks one verse for all their members and followers to memorize together. They put the verse on a temporary tattoo or on stickers, maybe a key tag, maybe jewelry, and they send it out to everyone at the beginning of the month. Seeing the verse over and over on your skin or on a sticker helps you commit it to memory. By the end of the year, you have dwelt on and memorized 12 different verses. I have been memorizing scripture with Dwell for about a year and a half, and I can honestly say that the verses I've tucked away in my mind and in my heart have been a source of peace or courage or just kindness from the Lord as I've recalled them in various situations. This month's verse with Dwell is from Luke 6, verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Recalling these words has been both an exhortation and an encouragement to me all month long. Check out Dwell at dwelldifferently.com and get a monthly subscription. Let's memorize God's word together. See the link in my profile. Yes. No, that is a word to the wise. I know that's something that happens to med students as well when they're in school as they begin to think they have uh, some of the illnesses that they're learning about. I've read that before. And, and anytime any of us log on to WebMD, we're certain we have the worst of the worst. And so I think it happens to all of us. And yet 
the positive side is that the taboo is being lessened and we are talking about it more. And so we can certainly celebrate that and, and sort of proceed with wisdom and with caution. For those of us and those who are listening who maybe have not experienced anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, some of the things that we're talking about here, can you help us understand what our friends and brothers and sisters and family members experience when they are walking through something like that? I guess what I what I want to do is maybe increase my own empathy, my own understanding, my own compassion so that I'm less likely to say something like, well, it's just a bad day. You know, tomorrow will be better. Help us understand. Well, the first thing that it comes to mind as you say that is just the sense of isolation or, if you will, just disconnect. Uh, so we might also use the word loneliness. Um, frequently, when I have new folks coming into my practice, whether the individual or group, uh, most people, you know, uh, if, if I press them, you know, and this is their first time with mental health uh, treatment, uh, they'll proceed by or precede by the statement, I don't know if you've ever had someone tell you this, and then they go on to tell me their story of anxiety or depression uh, or even bipolar, whatever the case may be. And I'm always a little bit hesitant to burst their bubble and say, well, you know, maybe it's uh, 10 o'clock in the morning and you're like the third one today that I've heard this exact same story. Um, when I get into uh, my groups, uh, you know, I usually have anywhere from eight to 12 people in my groups and everyone is always shocked to hear that I'm not the only one. And so when people come, you know, to you as, uh, you know, perhaps a, a leader in your church or uh, even a lay person, uh, what they want to know is, you know, is someone going to take the time to listen, to validate, to value what I have going on? And um, probably then the second piece is kind of that despair piece. Uh, so once we, you know, person know they're not alone, that there's a connection and there's a willingness to listen, uh, that there is a sense of hope. Uh, so that uh, sometimes people, you know, question, well, now that I have this diagnosis or they've diagnosed themselves, is this the way I'm always going to be? Am I always going to be this anxious? Am I always going to be this discouraged, this depressed? Uh, you know, is this darkness going to last forever? And being able to say there is hope, there is help, and uh, we're going to try to connect you with that. Yeah, that is so good. So just listening, sitting in it, hearing it, validating it. And encouraging our brothers and sisters that they are not alone and there is hope on the horizon. I think any of us can do that. Whatever level of knowledge or expertise we may or may not have, we can be with, we can sit with those in our sphere. Absolutely. And that's, I think, certainly, you know, the value of, you know, being brothers and sisters. We are mm -hmm. part of a family. And even as, you know, yeah. Paul uh, describes in 1 Corinthians, we're members of a body. And uh, as such, you know, we care for one another. And part of that caring for one another is just stopping long enough to notice there's a hurt, there's an injury, there's uh, something amiss. And we do well to pay attention to that. 
And even if we don't necessarily have the expertise, uh, we certainly do have uh, the ability to show compassion uh, as well as to be able to connect them with somebody who might be able to uh, assist in whatever struggle that is going on. Yeah, that's good. Tom, changing subjects sort of altogether here. I am very curious about something as a Coloradan. I'm a Colorado native, and this was one of the states to legalize recreational marijuana use. And I know that we have lots of drugs on our streets. Some are legal, some are not, but that is something that people come to Colorado and stay in Colorado for access to that. I would love to hear your understanding about the connection between recreational drug use and psychosis or mental health disorders? Well, I'm not sure we have that much time, but uh, I'm going to okay, do yes. my, my very best. Uh, in my practice, uh, sometimes I'll use uh, the word uh, addiction or addictive substances, addictive behaviors, uh, but a lot of times then I'm also substituting the term self-medicating. Uh, in my experience, uh, there's usually a reason that uh, folks are using whatever substances they ha are. Uh, so whether they're, you know, choosing to drown themselves in uh, alcohol, uh, whether, you know, they are, uh, you know, smoking, you know, copious amounts of marijuana, uh, whatever the case may be, the question that's always coming to my mind is, what are they trying to medicate? Uh, yeah. what's going on that a person is feeling the need uh, to somehow alter their sense of reality, uh, to alter brain function, to alter body function. Uh, so um, my sense is there's an awful lot of folks that do have a sense of uh, hopelessness uh, in uh, drugs, alcohol. They do provide uh, an instant uh, gratification kind of a need. Uh, most mm. people that have used marijuana, have used alcohol or whatever the, the drug out there, uh, we can certainly broaden that to addictive yeah. behaviors, uh, people uh, using food, using exercise, yeah. um, what have you, uh, in order to somehow fill either a void uh, or to you know, kill some kind of emotional or, or pain that's going on. So, yeah, we want to be paying attention to kind of the why is this here uh, is to, um, yeah, what's what's the need kind of going on in the background. But you also asked about, uh, so kind of what is the connection uh, and uh, an awful lot of things in uh, mental health, I find, are kind of like Siamese twins. So we refer to anxiety and depression. While they're not the same thing, they are kind of most of the time joined at the hip and one is kind of playing off or agitating uh, the other. And in the same way, uh, you know, we think about alcohol uh, is a depressant. Uh, so, you know, it's going to uh, in the, initially maybe give some euphoria or, you know, give uh, some, um, what should we say, inhibit impulses. Uh, but uh, longer term use, uh, it's going to, you know, in effect, brain function. It's going to be a depressant. Uh, same way with uh, marijuana. Uh, in a, people, the short term effects are going to be different than some of the long term effects. 
Uh, now, I know there's probably some of our listeners out there that are going to say, oh, oh, wait a minute, there's all this research. Uh, there is a lot of research, yeah, I guess funded by a lot of pro-marijuana uh, folks, folks that actually have a financial stake in being able mm. to push their product pretty heavily. Uh, mm. But we're always looking as to uh, the depression, it, the chemical may be making that worse, and the worse that the depression gets, the more the person, if you will, dives into uh, the chemical yeah. or the behavior uh, that is uh, at least temporarily giving them relief. So it's kind of this self-perpetual uh, motion machine that um, at some point we look at in my field of how do we interrupt that and be able to examine what, what do we really need to do with this and where are we really going with this? I think that is so helpful. I just appreciate what you've said about paying attention to whatever it is I'm feeling that I would like to mask or I would like relief from. Because really, that's all of us. None of us are exempt from that scenario, I think, many times a day. I mean, how often do we want to numb our minds, maybe with something like scrolling social media or consuming some sugar for a quick pick-me-up? I mean, it can be these everyday things that we're pursuing perhaps over and over for some kind of immediate effect. Um, and of course, sometimes it's alcohol and drug use as well. But I guess what I'm thinking here is just personally reflecting and knowing also that for everybody listening, this is something we need to lean into as we seek to abide in Jesus and love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. Amen. Um, what is it that I'm trying to mask? So that is helpful. Uh, let me ask you this, as we sort of alluded to some spiritual things, what is the connection between our spiritual well-being and our mental well-being? Are the two related? How? Well, uh, I'm trying to remember the uh, author book I read quite a few years ago. Um, and you maybe have to uh, look this up, but I, um, okay. he was a former, I believe, Hope College uh, professor, uh, but created in his image. Uh, one of the, uh, yes. the points that the gentleman made in the book, and that yeah. is we are created as whole beings. Uh, mm -hmm. So, you know, we have many different aspects uh, to our existence. Uh, but uh, in essence, yes, we are created in the image of God and we are unified. So uh, if we want to just say body, mind and spirit, um, you know, it's kind of maybe a very simple way to uh, describe that. Uh, what happens in one area is necessarily going to affect us in another area. So we'll just maybe pick on the example of the common cold. Uh, most of us would agree that yes, it is physical. So yeah, my whole body aches, my nose runs like a faucet, and but that's not all of it. Uh, emotionally, I'm probably going to have a severe case of the grumpies. Um, right. And as far as spiritually, um, being able to concentrate on the word and uh, being able to have that uh, really close fellowship with other believers, uh, with, uh, with God, uh, that cold may you know, negatively impact uh, those kind of things. So... Um, 
there is, yeah, they're intimately connected and artificially we can only separate them. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think the author might be Hukama. Yes, Anthony Hukama. Yeah. I will link that um, book in our show notes because actually I have recently been flipping through it myself as well as I've been trying to better understand the doctrine of humanity and how we are created whole. So I appreciate that. And we will link it in the notes so people can have a further read if they desire. So acknowledging that we are whole beings and we cannot be sort of disentangled one part of ourselves from the other. Where does our spiritual life play a role in our mental health? I guess what I'm getting at is if someone is struggling with anxiety, depression, some of the other things we're talking about, is it a matter of pray more? Is it a matter of go to church more? Should they see a biblical counselor? Should they see a secular psychiatrist or psychologist? Can you talk to us about where the Christian should go for help and where our boundaries are or our freedoms are? Well, that's, uh, I guess, uh, depend. Yeah, where do, maybe where do we start with uh, getting help? And I'm always interested that we start with uh, people that are believers, uh, people that are of discernment. Uh, so perhaps, uh, you know, if we have uh, uh, somebody in our church or within our, our family that uh, we can be able to talk to, and by the way, just kind of that's kind of a side note of stay well plugged into your uh, your marriage, uh, your extended family, your church family, uh, your church, all of those things. So stay well uh, plugged in. So there hopefully isn't that uh, huge feeling of disconnect or isolation. But uh, having said that, uh, we want to you know, go to those people that are in closest proximity to us, those people that we can trust, uh, that probably are going to be thinking a whole lot more clearly than we are if we're in the midst of some kind of mental health uh, spiral down. Yeah. And they uh, hopefully can you know, give some guidance as to next step. So sometimes we may say, you know, the next step may be, you know, just sitting down with that uh, godly man or woman uh, that's connected in our church. Uh, maybe a pastor or a pastor or elder, uh, maybe your Bible study leader, your Sunday school teacher, whomever. Now, sometimes that may be enough. Uh, in other cases, maybe not. And so we're always looking as to then, you know, what's the next rung up on the ladder as to, you know, what the treatment is. Now, in a perfect world, uh, people geographically are going to be in close proximity to someone that is a person uh, of uh, faith and, you know, uh, clinical expertise. Sometimes that's not possible. And so, uh, one of the things that I find very helpful or you know, recommending, and this is also part of why uh, David and I wrote the book, is to empower you know Christian leaders, whether they're lay people or uh, clergy, uh, to be able to be equipped and knowing what that next step might look like. So we may start with a family doctor, uh, a family uh, practitioner. Uh, They may have some resources that the church may not in regard to uh, mental health, 
uh, hopefully the pastor is uh, read, you know, uh, done some good reading, knows what their limitations are, but then is also mm-hmm. connected uh, with uh, a solid uh, Christian counselor, uh, mm-hmm. whether they, you know, have gone through some kind of uh, certification program or if they have some professional degree, uh, but that, that would be kind of the next step uh, in the uh, treatment of mental health. Now, uh, you had mentioned like a psychiatrist. Uh, those are the ones that specialize in being able uh, to prescribe psychotropic medication. Um, usually psychotropic medication is not the first line of defense, uh, or I would say I would not like that to be. Uh, sadly, with an awful lot of uh, drug companies having huge financial stakes in mental health, um, DSM-5 has actually been heavily influenced by uh, the drug companies such that if you have a diagnosis, here's the medication that we want you to be on. Um, you had mentioned, um, uh, I think, or maybe it was, uh, you know, my buddy that I had had breakfast with earlier and was saying that I have uh, latched on to is pills don't give skills. Uh, hmm. You know, medication uh, can certainly uh, be like a good pair of basketball shoes where it's going to give you some good grip and good support uh, on the basketball court, but it doesn't make the free throw for you. Uh, it doesn't make the layup for you. You have to actually do the practicing. Uh, in the same way as someone may get on some uh, medication for uh, depression, uh, however, that may help uh, you know enhance some brain chemicals, uh, help them do their job a little bit better. Uh, but ultimately, if uh, the same patterns of thinking and uh, feeling and behaving are there, uh, probably the symptoms are eventually going to come back uh, because, again, we have those same patterns that have supported or led to uh, the depression or the anxiety in the first place. Yes. Okay. So what I appreciate what you said is somebody in local ministry here, you said hopefully that pastor or you know women's ministry leader has done some good reading has some understanding of mental health and spiritual health, as well as some understanding of his or her limitations, and then some good connections in the community um, to counselors who have a Christian worldview, maybe biblical counselors, maybe a Christian psychiatrist. But I appreciate in the book and in this conversation, you've sort of said we do have freedom to a wide array of opportunities for treatment through people or medication or specific kind of therapies. And yet let's start with the body of Christ that we belong to. Let's start with our brothers and sisters in the faith and then move forward slowly and prayerfully and with wisdom to perhaps more uh, levels of care if that's needed. So I appreciate that answer because that is something I wrestle with Mm -hmm. all the time. So thank you for that. And I want to commend to our listeners the book, The Christian's Guide to Mental Illness, where you and David Murray answer 30 common questions. Everything from what is depression to can I take medication to what is a good biblical counselor? And these are things we're talking about all the time in my local church. So I do commend the book to everybody who's listening if you want to learn more. Um, Tom, I would love for you to have just the last word. Can you leave us with some gospel hope when it comes to mental illness? Close us out with just a word of an encouragement where Christ meets us in this and why we can conclude this episode and carry on with our day with a hopeful outlook. 
Well, one of the things that we understand, and that is Christ is sufficient to meet all of our needs. And so, you know, he, uh, you know, certainly has saved us for, from our sin. Uh, he not only gives us an eternal hope, uh, but he has connected us with uh, brothers and sisters, uh, body of Christ, in order to uh, care for each other, uh, to love each other, and to help mature us uh, in our Christian walk with uh, our uh, precious Savior. Mm. Christ is sufficient. I will let that be the very last word. Thank you, Tom Carroll. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you very much, Jen. It's been a pleasure. And thank you, everybody, for listening to All Things. Be sure to check out our show notes for more resources on this important topic. Hey, thanks so much for listening to All Things, where we look at current events and cultural trends through a Christian lens. All Things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His word to what's happening here and now.